Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Ellen Trackman. I'm an attorney specialized in assisted reproductive technology law, probably one of the most fascinating areas of law there is. And I'm here with my amazing co-host and sister, Jennifer White. Yay! Uh, I am not an attorney. I'm just saying. I, I don't even play one on TV Yet. at all. We'll see. Maybe we'll make you one eventually. Growth mindset. Growth mindset. Uh, right? Right. Um, so... Jen, do you think yes. we are in a post-pandemic era now, or maybe just pretending to be? And I, uh, aside from yes or no, do you have tribal plans? Uh, I think that we are in a pandemic ignoring period now mm. is where we are, mm-hmm. is that we've all put our fingers in our ears and are saying, I'm not listening to you anymore. <laughs> is, that, is that where we are? Yeah, as long as the government doesn't tell us to put like earplugs in or fingers in our ears. Right, right. right. It's only if we do it of our own free will. Correct. Uh, oh. But yes, I do have travel plans, but I also traveled a ton during like the height of everything too. So I, you know, just because we... responsible of you. I moved across the country. I didn't have much choice. Okay. <laughs> um, right. The government told you to, literally. The government did actually tell me to move, <laughs> yes. Um, but I do have travel plans. I am excited to slowly emerge my head, but I am like a cautious traveler. So even though masks aren't you know required anymore, I definitely still wear them when I go places and even when I travel. Um, but I am going to go to a tropical place this summer with my husband, which oh, will be lovely. Nice. Um, and then I'm going to Europe with our mom this fall for a week. So that yeah, I'm very excited. What about you? Any travel? Um, I don't know. I have nothing interesting or exciting. Not at all. Um, but something that is interesting and exciting is that maybe more hopeful parents will be traveling more. So it's important to... Um, talk about other countries and other laws, such as those in Israel, which are very interesting. Yes, let's do it. Welcome, Victoria Gelfin, to the podcast. Victoria, thank you so much for joining us. Hi there. Thank you for having me. And for those who don't know, Victoria is a prominent surrogacy attorney in Israel. So joining us all the way from Israel, thank you so much with the time change and everything working that out. Um, I would love to start by hearing a little bit about your your background of what brought you to law and to surrogacy law especially. Well, what brought me to law was an absolute just chance. Um, I didn't mean yeah. to become an attorney, but I just thought that uh, <laughs> studying law would help me in life in general uh, to understand my rights and my um, family's rights. Uh, but then I started uh, studying at the university and it was so interesting. So I said, yeah, I think I might just stay in that area. Um, yeah. And then specifically fertility law, uh, when I was just a young attorney in 2004, there was a couple that came for consultation. I was just doing family law and uh, LGBT couples. And one of those LGBT couples came to ask how can they have children and they told me the story that they've been together for 10 years they have a prenup they got married um, with uh, in the united states or in canada 
like they have it all they just want to have children and what are their options to have children in israel and i was so sad to just have to turn them down and say hey you cannot adopt in israel you cannot any longer adopt in other countries uh, where previously was allowed to adopt because you are gay you cannot have surrogacy in israel because the surrogacy law in israel only provides for surrogacy procedures for straight couples. Uh, there is law in Israel since 1996 that allows surrogacy in Israel, but it is only for men and women. Um, so they did not have any options to have children besides turning to a woman and have a co-parenting arrangement, meaning that she will raise the child jointly with them so share time and probably have more than 50 percent of the uh, of the time and of the decision making authority so that did not suit them and it was really disappointing to them and to me to be in that situation but then the next year another couple came and they asked me but listen what if we did surrogacy elsewhere just outside Israel, and I was, wow, wait, <laughs> let me think about it. <laughs> because adoption law really had a very uh, definite clause about how one must adopt from a foreign country through the Hague and the whole thing, so through organizations pre-approved by the state, but the surrogacy law didn't have a similar chapter on foreign surrogacy it had very thorough limitations on how one is to do surrogacy in israel so this is for straight couples only who must have medical reasons etc but there is no chapter whatsoever if one was to do surrogacy in another country and i told them well you know israel is always about genetics so if you have a child genetically related to you, Israel cannot deny you from being recognized as the parent of this child, at least the genetic father uh, yeah. of you. So they will have to acknowledge that child. And I did all my possible additional checkups and I said, really, just, just get going. Wow. And they had a pregnancy and in 2007, they had their twins born in India. And they called me and said, hey, Victoria, so we had our children born two weeks ago and we got them birth certificates naming us as parents. So oh, how both. do we bring them yeah. to Israel? They say we, we uh, um, emailed the embassy of Israel in India and we asked yeah. to get passports for the children. And they said no. And I'm like, of no. course they would say no. You must <laughs> do things through the... I know, but by, by process, mm. you have to understand how the government would want to make the arrangements about that. So it was a really hectic couple of weeks uh, to reach mutual decisions with the attorney general, how they want to handle this bizarre situation. And they uh, requested us to do DNA testing by an Israeli lab, uh, which is also very specific to Israel, uh, genetic relations does allow you to be recognized as a legal parent, but it's only 
if you do genetic testing at an Israeli lab, certified lab, and this must only be done by court order through family court. So you cannot just wow. go to a private lab and do mm -hmm. testing and present it somewhere. So you have to file a case to the family court, get a court order, by that order, go to the specific lab, uh, get your DNA uh, sampled, and then by the results of that test, um, attorney general must confirm that they are okay with you to be declared as a parent. And this is a process that usually takes about six months at the wow. time. And wow. yeah, so they had children already born. <laughs> And it was the quickest uh, parentage case ever held in Israel because instead of the six months, it took me seven days. Oh, wow. And, That's amazing. Yeah, and it, it was really funny. And out of the seven days, six and a half it was the time that it took for the DNA lab to handle the samples. Uh, the rest of it was really handled within hours. And I came to court and I was wearing like flip-flops. It was a hot summer day. I wasn't... <laughs> thinking I would go to court. I didn't think everything would really run that fast. And I appeared uh, in a tank top and it was judge on call. And I'm like, I'm That's sorry, hilarious. judge, I'm sorry, you're wrong. <laughs> and it was a judge that by fluke um, had another uh, hearing on another case with me that uh, was presidential uh, just a couple of weeks beforehand. So he said, I remember you, it's okay. And yeah. so this is how it started. So this was the first case of twins born to Israelis in India. And we set the way how to do the naturalization for those children born in by foreign surrogacy to Israelis. And it's been more wow. than 2000 babies born since during the last 15 years. And all of them went through the same process that I set back at the time. That's amazing that you kind of handled the first and set the process. Uh, and what does that process look like for the other dad, the non-biological dad, the non-genetic Yeah, dad? okay. So there's another story about that. Oh. <laughs> another couple approached me in 2007. And when I started the case for, for the first couple, they were pregnant in the U.S., uh, also with twins. And they... Um, they came to an appointment and they said, all right, so we want to petition to the High Court of Justice that we both should be acknowledged as legal parents of our children because in the U.S. we uh, both are going to be registered on the birth certificate. And I said, hey, guys, I think it's a bit early to request that from our courts who don't, don't yet know how to deal with any of that. Let's, you know, not dive in too fast, too deep. Uh, so let's just get the genetic parent acknowledged and then the second parent do second parent adoption because we just had that um, started just a couple of years beforehand in our courts. Until 2005, you could not get a second parent adoption for gay couples. They could only get guardianship orders. But I said, well, you can now adopt, so we'll just try to adopt. Little did I know that it would take four years until we managed to find wow. the path, how to allow them to adopt, because 
by the opinion of the state of Israel, the birth mother, she's the mother. So she should waive the children. She should sign her consent for these children to be adopted. But how can she sign her consent for her children to be adopted if these are not her children by her <laughs> local laws? Um, so it was a turmoil there as well until we reached some kind of middle grounds. Uh, but then a few years later, it did change into what we now call uh, parentage orders. So within Israel, we now do not have to do the uh, second parent adoption and a second parentage order is sufficient. But this is mostly for internal Israeli needs. When we have clients mm -hmm. who think of moving to live abroad or who have uh, several citizenships, we do still recommend them to do second parent adoption, which is um, more widely um, recognized because the parentage order may not be recognized uh, by other countries. In Israel, it's, it's the same. You get registered as another parent on all the paperwork. Makes sense. Um, and recently, there's been some really big um, evolvements, right, when it comes to whether gay couples can go through surrogacy in Israel. Do you want to speak to that? Yeah, so we've only waited about 20 years for that change. Not, not too much. And there were some petitions throughout the years to try to, to expand the law and allow uh, singles and gay couples to be eligible as intended parents and they were denied or um, commissions were gathered to do some thinking and write reports and all of them said how the, the whole process as it is currently it runs so smoothly why should we touch something that works so well well yes mm. it works well it just doesn't give the eligibility to other people who are also citizens in the country and they should not be treated differently. Um, it took about 15 years of fights to allow uh, fathers, whether single intended fathers or gay fathers uh, in a relationship to become eligible as, um, as parents. In the interim, in 2018, the law was changed to allow single mothers to be intended parents, uh, but only using their own genetics. So this is only for women who would be using their own eggs, meaning still if this is a woman who is otherwise eligible, she can show medical reasons, she's within the uh, age frames, uh, but her eggs aren't viable and she would need double gametes donations, sperm and eggs, she wouldn't be eligible for surrogacy in Israel. Mm. And she also wouldn't be eligible to be recognized as a parent if she underwent surrogacy elsewhere, like in the United so States, where you don't need a genetic connection, but then she would have a child that would not be recognized in Israel. But I think we will just get back to that shortly, because I do want to finish answering your uh, previous yeah. question about the, the very recent change uh, is that in January 2022, the um, 
the government just announced that gay couples would be allowed to become eligible intended parents and undergo surrogacy. Uh, they wouldn't need to provide medical reasons because the fact itself that they cannot carry their children is sufficient. Um, but the issue currently is that they still cannot do the process due to the lack of eggs. A gay couple, besides needing a surrogate to carry the pregnancy in order to create embryos, they have sperm. They have more than enough sperm. Neither of them have eggs. Uh, and they need an egg donation. And egg donations in Israel are just so scarce. Um, Israel is so pro-genetics and um, there just aren't many volunteering women to donate their eggs. And um, that actually led me, and I apologize, I'm going to interrupt because I, like, I have a, and I think it's going to lead us a little bit in a different, towards something else that I know we wanted to talk about, about the genetics part. So you mentioned that, like, for parentage and for the course tissue orders and things like that, that there has to be a genetic, a provable genetic connection. Does that mean a woman carrying a donated egg? Is that problematic for her if she carries for herself? How does that work no, in your court system? No, a, a birth mother is the mother. And if you remember just a few minutes ago when we discussed the second yeah. parent adoption for gay couples, it was an issue because the surrogate was considered was by the state of Israel to be parent. the mother. Yeah, if you give birth, you're the mother, no questions asked. So if... Okay you're just a single woman or whatever in a relationship in Israel and you were carrying unrelated to your pregnancy, but you're the one giving birth, you're the legal mother, no questions asked. But if you uh, created some embryos from donated eggs and donated sperm, you did a few attempts, you could not get pregnant, or maybe you did get pregnant and you have one child and you had complications in your pregnancy and you have leftover embryos are genetic siblings of your own child no you cannot use those embryos in surrogacy because once wow. you have that additional step that you will not be carrying the pregnancy then no but i say i mean i my logical brain goes but to if you want to talk about genetic affinity and genetic connection wouldn't also it be in the child's interest to have the genetic sibling they be want, brought to life too yeah, they want a biological connection. So giving birth is a biological connection. Okay. So that is sufficient for them. And just the genetic relation to siblings, no, it was never raised or discussed in its own as giving the right to someone to have these children with surrogacy. But on another hand, the High Court of Justice has said repeatedly that surrogacy in Israel would only be allowed with a genetic relation to at least one of the intended parents. Um, so one other thing that I find absolutely, absolutely fascinating in Israel is, um, well, in the United States, we have, we've seen a growth of interest in posthumous conception and post-mortem retrieval. And here it's pretty hard and to accomplish and a lot of hospitals prevent it, but they're, what I've seen has been some very interesting cases specifically out of Israel where um, there's one I know where I think it was a teenage girl who unfortunately died pretty suddenly and her parents had requested that her ova, her eggs be retrieved and a court had agreed. Um, and that seemed pretty 
pretty unusual from a U.S. legal standpoint, but I would love to hear kind of the thinking when it comes to posthumous conception as well in Israel. I know a little bit off from surrogacy, but definitely related <laughs> just, to just assisted reproduction. Yes, right. Um, so um, any posthumous process is divided into two steps. The first one is the retrieval from the body of someone who is deceased. And the second step is the actual conception and having a child and who will raise the child. And because the initial step of retrieval is um, unreversible, meaning if you miss out on that opportunity that only exists for just a few hours after a person dies, um, it's pretty... I wouldn't say easy, but this is achievable to receive court's permission to retrieve whether sperm or, in this exceptional case, uh, the ova from the deceased person and to be kept somewhere, frozen. But then the next step of creating a pregnancy and creating a child using these gametes is much more complicated. And the current status quo is that if these are the parents of the deceased person who want to raise, to, to bring to life their grandchild and to raise that grandchild, no such thing would not be allowed in Israel. The only cases, and there were quite a few that were allowed, uh, they were all with sperm, not with oba. Um, were where such parents had to find a woman that would enter into not a co-parenting arrangement, but an arrangement with these grandparents, right, with the parents of the deceased, that they would allow her to use the sperm of their child. She would have the child, she would be the mother, and making it clear in their arrangement that she's the sole parent of the child, so she's the sole decision-making person for their child, and whether uh, they would get visitation rights or would they support her or whatever, it's all discussed in the contract. And then the court allows such arrangements and allows such women to become pregnant from such sperm because then they look at it like a known sperm donation to that woman. This is the only scenario where a known sperm donation is allowed in Israel. There is absolutely no other way to receive, uh, receive a sperm donation which is known. All sperm donations in Israel are anonymous, absolutely. Meaning if a woman wants uh, to use the sperm of her friend, who just says, hey, you know, you can have it and um, you can raise the child. Yeah. There is no so arrangement that can, yeah, so it's an arrangement that cannot be made between them and be actually valid because wow. genetics, right? In Israel, it's all pro-genetics. So since they know it's his genetics, he will be the father of the child. So as long as he's not registered as the father of the child, the woman will act as a sole parent, as an exclusive parent. But if that man decides that 
he wants to have a relationship with the child. He wants to get visitations, or if she decides to sue him for child support, then no arrangement that they sign between them will hold. She may be able to sue him for child support and prove his parentage via DNA testing. He may sue for um, visitation rights or for any other uh, claims of a parent. Um, and the only option to have a known sperm donation without having the, the risk of the, the father becoming involved is to have the sperm of a deceased person. Wow. You've never looked and, at it from that angle, haven't you? Right. <laughs> no, and it, and to me, it doesn't make any sense, especially to say it has to be anonymous when we all know modern technology and these DNA tests, it's very, very easy. You know, even if you use anonymous donor sperm or anonymous donor eggs that you can DNA test your child, at least here in, in the U.S., and there's like an 85% chance that boop, 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 like um, – that that's going to show up who yeah so it's not very common in israel interesting um but i'll tell you another interesting um, anecdote i don't know if you keep it um (laughs) a couple came to me with the following story the woman was undergoing um insemination or ivf with a sperm donation and during her fertility treatments she she remembered that at the hospital, the corridors, she met someone she distantly knew from work-related something. Um, And then she had twins and she was raising them as a single mother. Um, And that man, he was at the time married with children so that they were not related to each other in any kind of connection. And then they met after a few years. Uh, He was divorced by then and they became a couple and after a while that they started living as a family people who would meet them would always say huh the children look so much like you daddy and like (laughs) he was not the daddy and they said well there is actually some um weird things like in the toes or that they could they be related? And he admitted that at that time when she met him at the corridor of the hospital, he was donating sperm to that oh, same clinic. Wow. And they reached out to the clinic and they wouldn't want to share information, but eventually they gave in and they checked the records and they said, well, yes, you are the sperm donor. Uh, through whose sperm this woman has conceived. So small he, world. you know, yes, small world. And he's the father of the children that, that she conceived. And they came to me and they say, so he wants to be registered as the father because he's the actual genetic father of the children, right? The clinic has confirmed. And how can they do that? And I said, we will just have to file with the court for genetic testing with all the related costs and we will just have to say, you know, they, they've known each other once um, and then she had children and now they want to, um, to check his parentage as if maybe they had a fling. So mm. like trying oh. to sound as vague as I could, 
because yeah. I was really convinced that if I told the story that he donated through yeah. a sperm bank and she was a recipient of the sperm, just to want to safeguard the anonymity of sperm donations, I think that the state of Israel would have prevented the handling of that file. They just would have, I believe, declined the case. Yeah, I think they would have just said that it's uh, that they cannot help with that. They cannot establish the parentage, and that's why I said just let's keep the the whole part of sperm donation unknown to the court and to the state of Israel, and just ask to be tested for uh, DNA. Did it, did it work? And it, it did, and he was the <laughs> father, and he was just you know declared to be the genetic father of the children whom she gave birth to. A small world, yes, it yeah. is. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Um, and I, I have to bring up one other interesting news in the U.S., which I always thought was funny. So, because known sperm donations are pretty common here, where there's just private, you know, citizen men who are offering their sperm, and you know, some are very vocal about it, and you know, talk to journalists and are on podcasts, etc. And one was pretty, became pretty famous. He was very out there about his donations. And he talked about how he was going to Israel because he was in such high demand um, as this. Was it Aaron Nigel? Yes, yes. And then, um, and then he got banned by the Israeli government from donating. Do you, do you know that story? Want to tell that story? I absolutely know that story. Yes. Please. Um, because, like I said, any arrangement for a receipt of a known sperm donation are not valid in Israel. Uh, there is an actual requirement from women who are not married and they come for insemination or um, IVF processes with a man that they are not married to. Uh, the parties have to sign an agreement confirmed by an attorney that they declare that the partner would not uh, be seen as solely a sperm donor, that he intends to be the father of the children, that she does not act as a surrogate, and there are some other um, paragraphs to be stated there. But that declaration that the man declares that he intends to father the children to be born, this is something that um, Ari Nigel signed in all of the arrangements with all of his recipients. And he was a returning oh, wow. client in those clinics. And after some of these processes, they said, hey, like you've already had 20 children. So your declaration that you do intend <laughs> to become father of all these children, this is, it's not right. It, it is just, no, we cannot do that anymore. And that was the end of it. And he said, hey, I can, you know, have as many children as as I please and find the yeah. recipients who want that. Uh, it, it's my uh, right of privacy and of whatever family rights. And the court said, no, nay, this does not look as if you intend to actually father all those children, even if you agree to acknowledge your parentage or if you were actually sued for child support and are paying child support this is not what we see as active 
fatherhood. So, so no. So fascinating. So different than the way we think of things here that, you know, freedom, independent choices, but there that's not an option. No. Where are Israeli um, citizens and couples going to, to have children by surrogacy? Uh, so throughout the years, I, I think in the early 2000s, like 2008, 9, 10, 11, uh, really many of them went to do surrogacy in India and Nepal and Thailand until all of those uh, cheap options um, have stopped being uh, applicable to foreign citizens traveling there. Um, surrogacy in the United States obviously has always been the most expensive and least approachable to many um, and if we compare the number of processes held in Israel to those held elsewhere for Israeli tenant parents uh, we see a pretty stable number of around a hundred cases that happen per year in Israel and they are all counted for because all surrogacy procedures in Israel have to go through an approval committee. So any surrogacy arrangement, it's not just a contract that you must sign before the fertility treatments, but this contract must be approved by the pre-approval committee uh, by the government that they read through the contract. Of course, you have to have all the prerequisites of the medical reasoning and the woman meeting a very specific criteria defined by law. So it's not up to a clinic to decide which candidate to accept or refuse to, uh, but she must be of certain age, she must be under 38, she must uh, not have had more than um, four pregnancies, she cannot be a surrogate more than twice. Um, she did not give birth prior to 35 weeks of pregnancy. So there are many characteristics for the potential surrogate to meet by law. Um, and we see numbers around 100 cases per year that were approved by the committee and happened. Most of them became um, pregnancy and children. But during the same time, we see that there were about 300 or more held per year abroad. Many of them are of straight couples that went to Georgia and Ukraine mostly because they are much closer and they are cheap and available and quick. It's just a couple of hours of flight. Uh, and now we do have a problem, right? Because there is no real surrogacy happening now in the Ukraine. There is a yeah. bit of a war going on there. Yeah. Um, and for the gay couples, uh, we did have Albania and Colombia, the country, um, and some other options, um, a few here and a few there. Uh, but mostly the surrogacy procedures by gay couples and singles were held in the United States during the recent years. So if we combine all of those um, to see more than 400 cases per year, there aren't enough women in Israel to um, 
to suffice for all the couples that need surrogacy. Mm -hmm. So uh, if you do want to have a child within a certain period of time and you cannot accommodate waiting for a surrogate for maybe a few years, then you would still go abroad. And uh, it's a funny thing about the gay couples, gay tenant parents, uh, because the gay community in Israel is so uniquely uh, tight and they are very intimate with each other, not the intimate um, meaning, but they just they <laughs> all know each other. They just all know each other, not biblically know each other, but just know each other. <laughs> and they, <laughs> they not much of biblical about that, but uh, <clears throat> they um, talk to each other. They seek recommendations from each other. They um, when they start. A, a, a journey they talk with their friends and friends of their friends and then we see tendencies that all of them go like a herd one after the other so there are a few mm -hmm. favorite agencies and everyone just goes to those agencies and then we see like bottlenecks especially in the united states if it's not in colombia where there is an supply and demand because they have just women ready to do that for needing parents and it's not about an actual match yeah. that must happen between the parties that the surrogate must accept the intended parents and um, be willing to work with them uh, but in the united states um, each agency handles i don't know a few dozens of cases or maybe 80, 90, 100 cases per year. And if uh, mm -hmm. at the same time, they have like 20 intended parents from Israel coming, all using the same clinic, all having the same requirements from the surrogates, all looking for the same characteristics uh, because they all come from like the same school. Uh, it's really a phenomenon that has created a major problem to some of the agencies working a lot with Israeli intended parents that they don't have the sufficient diversity in their clients. And then uh, the intended parents find themselves that instead of just waiting for just a few months for surrogates, they're there waiting for, I don't know, a year or a year and a half because yeah. in their specific uh, circumstances, they're just too many other intended parents who are very similar to them waiting. So that I don't sense. think I've seen that with intended parents from any other country as we do see, see that with the Israelis. Yeah. I mean, I get trusting, you know, talking to people in your community and trusting who they've worked with, but right. I do see how that leads to issues. Uh, so for me, Ukraine. I would say as, as an attorney in the field or as a service provider in the field, having such a tight community, it's it also has its benefits, obviously, because if you are well known as someone who does good work and you get referrals and they refer their friends and friends of their friends, so it's very continuous and it's good to have that as someone who provides good services uh, but when when you're looking at 
your services are to assist them with their process in the US and all of them want to choose the same providers because their friends have chosen the same providers, the same agencies and the same clinics. And I try to steer them, no, try some different directions. There are more than just two agencies <laughs> or three clinics right. to use. You can just go elsewhere. No, we want to go to that place because our friends had a good journey there. <laughs> right. A bit of a problem. Uh, so I did want to ask just because uh, so many U.S. couples went to Ukraine uh, and had surrogates there when the invasion started. And it's been kind of article after article that we've been seeing that have been really scary where parents have been desperate to reach their children or desperate to try to help their surrogate get to safety. Have um, Are you guys experiencing the same thing for Israeli parents who worked with surrogates in Ukraine? Uh, so I think that there weren't that many surrogates with active pregnancies at this time. Uh, mm-hmm. It was really sad to see that the small number of cases where births just occurred around the time of uh, when the war started and uh, the newborn and intended parents were quickly evacuated, but the surrogate was not picked up. Why not? Why can't you just bring this woman who just gave birth to this Israeli couple and bring her to safety, even temporarily? Um, that was really yeah. something sad to see from the Israeli authorities, I would say, or the whole organization of that was and uh, just gave a bad taste to the thing. Um, but the numbers are just not that large, uh, I think, specifically at this time of uh, children who were just recently born. But I think it's more of uh, ongoing pregnancies uh, that these women Mm -hmm. were just transferred to um, safer places to wait for their births there. Yeah, it was heartening to see. I, I think the United Kingdom, for one, has been giving visas for... Um, surrogates of intended parents in the United Kingdom to get to safety there. So that was a, a one case where I saw a country was kind of trying to step up and help. Mm-hmm. But but I hear you. Um, yeah. This has been well, amazing. Can do any other kind of really interesting or fascinating stories with surrogacy or assisted reproductive technology come to mind that you'd love to share, or any other closing thoughts you'd love to share? Mm-hmm. <laughs> pressure <laughs> yeah <laughs> I'm sure if it wasn't the last day of the week and the end of the work uh-huh. day <laughs> right we're so <laughs> sorry we're a bit overworked uh, yes. and I'm sure that well, once thankful- we hang up and I'm like oh, I could have told this yes <laughs> well we're thankful for you fitting us in we appreciate all, all of your expertise and all you do for families in israel and um yeah hope we'll hope we'll keep in touch and let people know of what a great resource that they have there thank you so much for having me Thank you to Victoria Gelfin for sharing all of her expertise and the latest of what's going on and for all the work she does to help um, support and form families in Israel and elsewhere.
Yes, absolutely. And and thank you to all of you who obviously come and listen to us every week. Uh, I, I love what I actually was at a conference pretty recently. And so many people were like, I love this. It feels really good to Aww, know that nice. the people are excited about what we are doing. Or at least uh, if they chose to say nice things to your face. Maybe. They did to my face. That is true. <laughs> and so I choose to take the positive where I can get it. Um, I, I would also typically try to thank people for calling into our, our phone hotline, which is, and I'm going to say it first and then tell the rest of my story, 303-997-1903. And I always get so excited when I get the, because they always come, they're digital. So it comes to my email and I see that I have a message and I get so excited. It's the next thing I do instantly. And lately they have all been spam mail or spam phone calls. So come on, I need a real phone call from people. It, it, it fuels me. So somebody call in and tell us just hi. So I we will like appreciate it. We'll a, call you out. I'm going to have to do a pity call now. <laughs> Jen, I, you Ellen should do a pity it. call. Yes. And I'm going to say the number again. So 303-997-1903. We would love to hear from you. Uh, but obviously, even if you don't call in, we still appreciate you. And we appreciate our team uh, to Melissa, to Tyler, to Amanda, everybody around us, and to you. Who Janelle. Comes every week. Thank you, Janelle. To Janelle. Yes, absolutely. We cannot forget Janelle. So thank you to, uh, this is why you can't thank people, right? Because then you you always leave somebody off and problem. it makes you feel horrible. So um, but I want to feel good about thank yous. So thank you to everybody for coming and listening to us every week. 